Hello, I'm Piero Vitelli, and welcome to Dancing in the Line of Fire, a podcast series exploring presentations and how to deliver them. The invitation still stands for you to contribute your thoughts on Twitter using the hashtag Dancing in the Line of Fire, all one word, and in the final episode, I'll address as best I can your questions. But now it's time for Chapter 4. What are you actually doing? In this episode, I explore one of the essential building blocks of communication that is as relevant to presentations as it is to everyday conversations. The motivation-driven behaviours that determine what we actually do during a piece of communication, whether we are transmitting or receiving at the time. I appreciate this might sound strange, but think about how you're listening to me right now. Are you listening receptively, sceptically? Or dismissively? Are you open to what I have to say? Or has the title, or something I've said in a previous episode, conditioned your listening in some way? I define presenting as the act of one person speaking with purpose to two or more others in an artificial setting such as a conference hall, studio, or on a webcam. If you accept this, and we then separate the act from the setting, it's obvious that it shares quite a lot with the everyday activity of having a conversation. So it's probably worth exploring what might be going on when one person encounters another. Before a conversation can start, people will invariably engage in a variety of behaviours with each other. A hill walker will often greet another by waving as they approach. A shop assistant will acknowledge a customer by smiling and a driver will usually indicate to a pedestrian that it's safe to cross the road, perhaps by flashing their lights. In closer proximity, it needn't be more than someone raising their eyebrows or making a slight gesture while taking a breath. And in some instances, it can be covert, as people can design the appearance of doing nothing while still actually doing something, such as the commuter on a full train who actively ignores boarding passengers in the attempt to dissuade them from sitting in the vacant seat right next to them. Of course, there are times when we are doing absolutely nothing to other people, such as being engrossed in a book, staring into space, or just watching the world go by. But my point is that in order to do nothing, we need to be absent as opposed to present. And as pleasurable as being absent undoubtedly is, it's not the most resourceful state in which to have a meaningful conversation. If you've ever tried to arrange details of tomorrow's lunch appointment with someone who is busy checking their phone, only to receive an intermittent stream of nods and mm-hmm noises, then you'll know exactly what I mean. When you watch people engrossed in a conversation, you'll see that beneath the exterior of their social interaction, they are hard at work doing things to each other. They engage each other, they offer thoughts and ideas, they pay attention to what the other has to say. They sometimes question assumptions. They might tease each other. They often seem to guess what the other is about to say. They almost certainly interrupt each other at times. Perhaps they tell jokes or agree on common ground. They celebrate the value that they find in each other. And sometimes they signal quite ineffectively that they want to end the conversation. This list is by no means exhaustive, and it makes assumptions about the quality and nature of the conversation, 
but it hopefully illustrates the point that nothing in an effective and productive human interaction can happen without the active participation of all parties. Bearing in mind the experiences of Ian Waterman in the last chapter, it follows that if we become aware of what we're actually doing or trying to do during these social interactions, then we are conscious of the behaviours we use and we can rehearse them. And this leaves us better able to summon them up and deploy them, even when we find ourselves in an unusual setting. If we then add to these behaviours some technical skills that help us to control technology and mitigate the effects of distance or size of room, this could allow us to generate one half of an engrossing conversation while facing an audience. And it's easy to forget that an audience is just a collection of ordinary people like you or me. And surely we can presume that, seeing as they are there, each of them would respond well to being welcomed, offered thoughts, and engaged in the same way as they would during a more everyday social interaction. The rock that is an audience's preconceived expectations is pretty firmly anchored for obvious reasons. But if we're able to manage our survival instincts and prevent them from undermining us, it would make the hard place more familiar, and the muscle memory we develop through rehearsal would bring outstanding presentations within our reach. To do this, it can help to explore and appreciate how we act normally in the first place, and where better than the world of drama and the way an actor prepares to play a character to help us understand this. Each and every one of us wants to be fulfilled, and we spend each day of our lives doing the things that make us happy and trying to avoid or mitigate the things that don't. The same is true for a well-written character in a good book, play or film. And to build one, an actor must understand first what makes them happy and then how they navigate their world to make that happen. Good stories are often about how we overcome what gets in the way of our happiness, and actors will typically break down a character's journey from start to finish of a story into three principal parts. First, the objective, which is like their mission. It's why they do what they do, what it is that will make them happy. Second, a number of actions, which is what they do in any given situation so that they can overcome any obstacles that stand in their way and move towards their objective. Third and finally, there's a vast array of activities to uncover. These are the moment-to-moment -moment behaviours that they use to further each action. If we take the lead characters from James Cameron's film Titanic as a well-known example, Rose is returning to America, hoping to escape the life of upper-class unhappiness that awaits her in an arranged marriage with her abusive fiancé, Cal. And carefree Jack is moving on to the next adventure in his life as an itinerant artist. The drama starts when she tries to jump from the ship in an effort to solve her problem by taking her own life. And as the right person in the right place at the right time, Jack persuades her not to. They then start to fall in love, despite the many obstacles of circumstance, social class, and expectation that they face, and so begins the struggle between all three. In the early part of the film, 
Cal first thanks Jack for his bravery by inviting him to dinner, but then immediately tries to evict him from their social circle, first using activities such as accommodate and invite, and then by trying to belittle and ignore him, whilst Jack tries to fit in at first and then stand his ground later, by first absorbing the petty humiliations directed at him and then starting to befriend Rose and defy Cal. As the film progresses, the stakes rise and the actions of Cal and Jack become more directly opposed and the activities they use more blunt and overt until the end. Film, as Alfred Hitchcock once noted, is just life, but with the boring bits taken out. And in this example, the connection between objective, action and activity are clear to see. If you find it too fantastical to relate to, even just a passing awareness of the manoeuvrings over the past 10 years of the British politician Michael Gove is more than enough to appreciate how they are no less linked in the real world. The patience and persistence with which he covets the position of Prime Minister is an objective clear for anyone to see. At times, he circles the office lazily like a shark feigning indifference and every now and then dives out of sight completely for long periods of time, usually when he judges that the incumbent is starting to struggle and any proximity might jeopardise his chances by association. Sifting through the articles that he has written over the years reveals a bewildering contradiction of statements and assertions that prove he employs whatever action he considers the most expedient of the day and his television interviews are a reliable display of the sophistry and misdirection that his raw ambition prevents him from hiding. Subtle he isn't, but then again, neither was Macbeth. It doesn't have to be from the world of film or politics, it could be you or me. On a rainy Sunday afternoon, we might have the objective to spend the evening watching a film with everything ready for a new week. That requires us to fulfil the actions of getting our children to have their showers and complete their homework. This, as I'm sure requires little imagination to accept, might require the activities of asking, or even demanding, that our children clean their rooms, persuading them to complete their homework, and mildly threatening them with all manner of consequences if they don't do as they're told. If we transfer this mechanism to the world of a typical presentation, I suggest that the objective is almost always to persuade the audience to undertake a particular course of action in the future. The action is therefore to get them to accept and acknowledge why they should, and the presenter's job in the moment is therefore to use a range of appropriate and effective activities to make this happen. It's really important to make the distinction between activity and action. For example, a sales manager may choose to challenge, encourage and support their executives in order that they agree to a much higher annual revenue target in order to break all existing records in the next year and then become the number one company in their sector. It's obvious that you can't break all records an audience and you can't agree an audience, but you can challenge encourage and support one. An activity is always a transitive verb, something that you can do to another person or that can be done to you. 
And if you don't do anything to an audience, they must motivate themselves to pick through the content of a presentation and come to their own conclusions, which then begs the question of what was the point of it in the first place? The absence of activities reveals an absence of interest, and it's unlikely that the story of Rose and Jack would have continued beyond their initial meeting had they not engaged with, befriended, and eventually seduced each other. It's equally doubtful that we would find a presenter engaging, inspiring, or motivating unless they tried to engage, inspire, or motivate us. As for Michael Gove, time will tell. If, as we approach the end of this episode, you find yourself thinking, oh, wait a minute, this is all very well, but you used to be an actor, didn't you? Then please do bear in mind the following. Firstly, I wasn't a particularly good actor because I was never able to play a character whose objectives I didn't approve of. I'm too wedded to my own. And secondly, because we're all actors anyway. Humans are natural mimics, and most of us will have play-acted as children in a wonderful world of make-believe. As we grew, we were possibly encouraged to stop playing and stop being serious and grow up. But I suspect, and indeed I assert, that we all remain capable of play-acting long after we become adults. You are an actor. And if you don't think you're an actor, then ask yourself these questions. When was the last time that you pretended to like someone that you don't particularly like because it got you what you wanted or needed? If you don't think you're an actor, ask yourself, when was the last time that you suddenly had to check something on your phone in order to avoid making eye contact with someone who had just entered the room? If you don't think you're an actor, Ask yourself when the last time was that you suddenly gave a little laugh or made some other displacement activity to cover up the fact that your stomach was churning from a feeling of humiliation or rejection. Of course there are differences between actors and presenters, and I would never dare suggest otherwise. Indeed, one of the most exciting ones is that whilst actors have to deliver someone else's script as though it's their own, Presenters get to create and write their own, and then bring them to life. And the outstanding ones make sure that theirs is like no one else's in the world. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please do join the conversation on Twitter and use the hashtag DancingInTheLineOfFire, all one word, and your comments will shape the content of the last episode. If you want to find out more about the work I do, then visit island41.com, and I hope to see you next time. <laughs>